0: Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media.
1: I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman number 31, three Septembers into January. Cover date of this was October 1991. The penciler and inker was Sean McManus, Daniel Vazzo as colorist, Todd Klein as letterer, Elisa Quitney as assistant editor, and Karen Berger as editor. Or as the comic itself says, Elisa uh, Quitney as Queen of New York, Karen Berger as Empress of Brooklyn. And uh, Todd Klein is notary of New Jersey and Daniel Vazo professor. And uh, unfortunately, Sean McManus, merely mister. So uh, it just kind yeah. of, I guess, as it went, he just kind of decided to layer more and more the titles on. I've really been enjoying this feature
0: of these distant mirrors (laughs) issues here of giving these uh, uh, issue suitable titles to the 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 staff, and I had real questions about. You know, Karen Berger is the she is the editor. She outranks Elisa Quitney here, but uh, uh, and and does outrank I guess in the sense of thinking of Empress as being a a more impressive title than Queen. But uh, New York versus Brooklyn there, so I'm not quite sure how this actually works out. Who's in charge in New York City? What's going? on. That's, uh, that's some fan fiction that I'm not sure anyone has written, but somebody should. All right. Well, let's talk about this issue here. This issue takes us back to another ruler or leader, because as I said, this is still part of the Distant Mirrors story arc, though this one is going to have a pretty big twist on that idea of ruler or leader. But like the other two issues, it is also going to really expand the fantastical elements of the world of Sandman in a pretty big way. And in fact, that is true right on the first page, where we see despair, whom we have not encountered in a long time. And it is September. It's 1859. We're in San Francisco. More specifically, we are in the room of Joshua Norton, who is a businessman who has recently lost his entire fortune. And despair is with him. Or maybe another way to put it, really, is that Norton himself has entered her realm. And what's happening on the page is that Norton is contemplating suicide. And in fact, the image here, the art here, really makes it appear like he is preparing to take his own life. But despair puts a hold on that. And instead, she summons Dream to her. And what she wants is a a game, a, a challenge. So she challenges Dream to use his dreams, to use his power to redeem Norton, that's actually the phrase here, but I guess really what we're meaning by this is give him something to to live for. Now, Dream does not want to play this game, but Despair accuses Dream of just not caring about the family of the Endless, and she blames Dream for their brother's abandonment. And I guess maybe here a note for people who have read this before. At this point, we still don't know who this is, that we have had this business about the absconding brother mentioned before. But Despair also says that desire and delirium will support her in this challenge. And I found this really interesting. I, I guess, Brent, I was really left here with the impression that this type of challenging one another is something that the Endless do, something they do to each other, though maybe not so much dream, death, and destiny. In fact, maybe not at all dream, death, and destiny. But it seems to be something that despair and desire and delirium perhaps do. And I guess we have had some hints of this before, but this is the first time that we're seeing, maybe not quite how this works, but at least seeing this in action.
1: I I think before when we've seen the mention of this, that there's a mention of the games that they play and that particularly Desire tries to play games with Dream um, and do little challenges with him. But This is the first time I think we're seeing a delirium being part of, you know, the group in that way, but also that it's not a dreams, not aware of it and trying to secretly get one over on him kind of way, which like from the beginning we've seen with desire where desire is trying to trick dream in dollhouse into taking family blood, um, and that there maybe might be consequences for Dream if he were to do so. This is just a, no, there's some kind of a wager, and it's not clear other than bragging rights what anyone gets. It seems a lot more uh friendly in a way. I mean, not obviously to the mortals who were affected, but amongst the relationship between despair and Dream. But also, it's the first time we're seeing that Any member of the Endless, I think, is speaking on behalf of the other members. So I remember that when Dream previously uh, met with desire um, within the threshold and accused desire and despair of like, you know, getting involved in meddling with his business, there was a mention there, but. You know, despair wasn't there and it wasn't clear whether Dream wasn't just, you know, painting with an overly broad brush is my memory of the thing where he's just assuming that the twins might be acting someone in concert. But here we have clearly that despair is attempting to like very much do a, OK, we'll let's set up this contest in which there are three of us on one side and you on the other. And here's the deal and here's the bargain. And so it's it's a lot more playful in its way, which is interesting coming from despair. Right. I think this
0: is the first time that we have seen despair and dream have this much interaction with each other directly, but in Doll's House, we do see despair and desire colluding uh, about this uh, this this game, right? Colluding about the rose business, this this business with the the dream vortex, and attempting to get Dream to spill family blood. They're talking to each other about that, but it is really only Desire whom Dream interacts with there. So we have seen some
1: hint of this before. In those scenes, I mean, we have despair interacting as if she's part of the plan, but we don't actually see them actively doing anything here. We have despair actively talking to Norton and kind of, you know, being tempted to to kind of maybe push him one side versus the other in terms of um, his level of despair so far more of a player but this i think is the first time we've seen dream other than the big gathering in destiny's garden uh we've first, first time we've seen dream and despair interacting with each other um and there they didn't really trade words directly so much as they were just at the same table at the same time i also like that the um <laughs> despair make takes the normal like i'm standing in my gallery i'm holding your sigil and just Uh, acknowledge, I think there's a couple ways to read this, but kind of acknowledges the, like, I'm not in my gallery. I'm not holding your sigil, but I'm going to call you anyways. And I, I, I think there's a couple ways you could read that. Part of it is maybe flaunting the rule, um, which seems like a way to kind of irk dream, or you could read it as just actually acknowledging that there should be things in place and going through the recitation actually is a way to acknowledge and kind of honor whatever rules seem to apply, even if you don't have all the, proper accoutrement of what you're trying to do. I think there's a couple different ways you could read that particular thing, but I found it interesting. And when I read this recently, um I read it different way uh within like a couple days of reading it and rereading it. I actually like took a different voice for despair each time. And uh it's fun either way, I think. I guess what I think is happening here is that
0: if you are summoned according to these rules, according to these procedures, maybe is a a clearer word for that, but according to the the things that we have seen, the the rituals that we have seen on the page elsewhere, that you can't refuse that. And in fact, that might even not just be true in some kind of legal sense, but true in an actual metaphysical sense of that you're you're going to go whether or not you want to, that there's a a, a numinous power to that. But That this summons really is more of a request, and of course, Dream is very proper, so he's always going to honor this type of request. This is something that we have, you know, seen time and again about Dream, right? Is that he believes in propriety and 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 courtesy, maybe courtliness, right? As as real values for him. Uh, But yeah, in terms of thinking about the the metaphysics of how this world works, I don't know that it's clear enough quite to to you know hang a lot on that. But it is it is funny. It is funny that she said all of all of that for sure, and her demeanor in this scene is. Well, it's not a demeanor that I think that we have seen despair have before, right? that she's she's actually quite angry. She's quite upset. She's essentially calling dream uh, a, a coward. She seems to really, really care that he take up this this challenge from her. And maybe something we should also emphasize here or at least think about here is that this is kind of the exact plot of Job, right? This idea that there are two numinous beings on, you know, maybe not opposing sides, but in this case, occupying Opposing, or not opposing necessarily, but occupying different realms who both have, or who each can have a stake in the life of this mortal or some kind of influence on this mortal. And they're going to have a contest to see who can have more influence. And the mortal himself will not ever actually know that that's happening. And uh, this is, I think, a really interesting way of doing Job, right? Lots of speculative fiction writers have taken Job as a kind of inspiration before and rewritten it in some way. I mean, sometimes even just calling their book Job. And here I'm thinking about Robert Heinlein, for example. But I think that's pretty clearly what Gaiman is doing here. And this is a really fun and really interesting take on it.
1: Yeah, I think it is an interesting way to approach kind of the, the Job story. Um, I do also think it's interesting. There, I read a fair bit of anger into Despair's approach to dream. Um, and at least the way I'm reading it, it is centered in part on perhaps feeling that not just trying to like, you know, get his goat, but actually feeling that dream maybe is in some ways responsible for the fact that their prodigal brother has left. Um, and I think we did see where we previously saw despair in destiny's garden, that despair was somewhat mournful at the fact that their missing brother was missing and that he was not there and no one had heard from him. Um, And, you know, part of that probably is just like, you know, despair is despairing, Um, which kind of lines up, but it feels like the loss and absence of the missing brother affects despair and delirium the most of any member of the family. The other ones seem to just acknowledge that he's gone and that's it. But despair here, I feel like might legitimately believe um, and then have anger and frustration associated with that belief that Dream it was at least in part responsible for the fact that their brother is gone
0: perhaps one way to think about what uh, is going on with despair here is to think about the the stages of grief and we don't have to apply that in any kind of draconian way but anger does come before that kind of acceptance that, that, that I think we witnessed in season of mist and of course here we are it's 1859 right so we're you know more than a century removed from season of mists this story then is presumably closer well I mean it definitely is closer to the brother leaving right though we don't know how close it is it might in fact turn out to be very close, and that would perhaps uh, you know also account for the the anger. But at in, in any rate, I guess I think it's probably fair to say that that's the stage that despair is in right now with this. And I, I think this is a pretty astute observation of yours. I actually hadn't thought about that. In fact, I kind of just really felt like despair was acting out of character for the way that we have seen her before. But I I like your your reading of this and this business about causing their brother to quit the family. I mean, this is also a button for Dream. It's precisely the correct button, in fact, to push to get him to play this game. And he agrees to do this. And so, yeah, now we are really going to get kind of the exact plot of the book of Job. And what Dream does now is put Norton to sleep, uses his sand to do that. And then he joins Norton in the dreaming. And this serves, I think, here principally to give us a little biography of Norton, where we learn that he was born in South Africa. He came to America to seek his fortune. He also found his fortune here, but then, of course, he has lost it again because uh, an investment in a shipment of rice did not work out. And while this is all going on, despair is also continuing to really goad Dream here. But Dream ignores her and gives Norton a dream that we don't Actually, see what it is. And then we're out of the dreaming, and Dream is gone, and we see Norton here now, much invigorated, and in fact, he's working on a proclamation that's going to be published in a local newspaper, and I think it is well worth just reading the text of this. At the peremptory request of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and for the past nine years and ten months of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in the music hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity." And then he signs this, Norton I, Emperor of the United States. And this is pretty awesome. And I think this is really where we need to pause, Branton. and just uh, let you tell us about the very real Emperor Norton.
1: So Emperor Norton was a real historical figure. Um, he was born, um, he, was, he grew up in South Africa, but he was actually born in Kent in England um, before he moved to South Africa and spent a lot of time there and uh, managed to amass a fair amount of money for himself. Uh- one report had it at about $40,000 before he moved the United States, um, which would be about a million and a half in today's dollars. Um, but he moved the United States to find his fortune, eventually finding his way from the East Coast over to San Francisco. He was in San Francisco by 1957. Um, and at that point, he actually privately was telling friends, at least, that he was emperor of California. But uh, later, he – uh, by 1959, he was, uh, or 1859. <laughs> by 1959, he was dead. By 1859, he, uh, was declaring that it was not just California, but he was actually emperor of the entire United States. Uh, this did follow, um, him, uh, losing most of his money, if not all of it, um, on some speculation based on, uh, speculating on the price of rice um this is what is laid out in the comic for us as well so yeah he was found himself destitute um and without um anything else to do and so he was in a point in which he was no longer had the financial means really to support himself but certainly not to continue to engage in the line of work that he'd been engaging in for commodity speculation and real estate um speculation so um in the real life, uh, as we see in the comic, he decided to take an elaborate swing. Um, and uh, this comic kind of postulates maybe what is going on in that regard. But uh, he did become um, kind of a famous character um, who became well-known throughout San Francisco in the area. And then actually there were reports that were made throughout the United States of him, which we'll see in the comic play out a little bit where the tourists come and visit um, he did create his own script that he did sell. It was also accepted at many restaurants and bars in the area. At one point, his uniform was in such tatters that the city council for San Francisco did actually uh, uh, decide to buy him a new one and he made all kinds of proclamations. uh there is a website for the Trust dot org where they're trying to tabulate which actual proclamations were his versus forgeries there were many forgeries you know during the time as well as since, um of people pretending to be him for whatever reasons but uh among his proclamations there was this idea of we should definitely build a bridge that connects oakland and san francisco that bridge later was built it's the bay bridge and there's been a lot of movement um uh, to occasionally re-dub it the 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 norton bridge um That has not quite happened yet, but we're getting more successful. But there are a lot of things you can find in San Francisco still kind of in tribute to Emperor Norton. Um, He was one of many characters um, who were in San Francisco at the time. And in fact, so for research for this, Neil relied primarily on two texts. Uh, One is uh, Catherine Caulfield had a book called The Emperor of the United States of America and Other Magnificent British Eccentrics. And Herbert uh, Asbury's The Barbary Coast. Um, there's also – actually, there was a third thing. He also looked at William Drury's Norton One Emperor of the United States. But uh, we will see a number of other eccentrics as we go through this um, issue of characters who were real residents of San Francisco around the same time. Um, but yeah, Emperor Norton uh, was in fact a real man.
0: Yeah, and Emperor Norton has has really taken on a, a life in in pop culture. I don't know quite what the timeline of that is, but I do think that this issue of Sandman is an important part of that timeline, and that uh, interest in Emperor Norton and all sorts of speculative fiction, and and also other areas of uh, arts and and literature as well, has really skyrocketed. And uh, he is a fascinating character, and I am really interested here to to talk about what what game in does with with this figure. And uh, I think in general, Game in here actually does a really wonderful job of painting a picture of what San Francisco is like here in the second half of the 19th century, when San Francisco was really on the the cutting edge of burgeoning American culture. And we're going to see some of that. But before we carry on, before we get to the second September, we have some more news that we want to share with you here. We have had the really, really good fortune to earn the support of a lot of new listeners. And so we have hit several stretch goals on Patreon in the last year, and two of them were Neil Gaiman stretch goals. Right now, we are finishing up the first of them. This is a a series on Sherlock Holmes that culminates in Gaiman's masterpiece short story, A Study in Emerald. And we have just aired that. We've just aired that on Patreon. It was a super amount of fun. And now we are working on the bonus episodes for that series. That's going to include Brent and I taking a
1: look at the time that Batman met Sherlock Holmes, among others. Yeah. So please join us on Patreon if you want to hear us talk about these stories. We really appreciate um, all of your support uh, to help us do our regular content, like the episode you're listening to. But also, um, it gives us a great excuse to visit for the first time or revisit uh, for the second, third or fifth time. um, Some of these great stories that um, we have uh, read before or are reading for the first time. So anyways, we greatly appreciate your support. um, And we look forward to you joining us over on Patreon to hear those additional uh, stories. And a huge thanks to everyone who already has joined us and
0: has made these extra series possible. They have just been an absolute blast to do. Well, all right, that was our first of three Septembers. So now it is time for the second one. And this is going to be in 1864. And this segment begins with Mark Twain, or Samuel Clemens, as his real name is. And we see him working on a story. And in fact, it's his very first story. And uh, it's not going well. He's very frustrated. He rushes down from his apartment and then runs into Emperor Norton on the street. Uh, They know each other. And Twain decides to take Norton out for dinner, though Norton says that he can't accept charity. But uh, it is true that Twain has not paid his imperial taxes this year. And the two of them have a really great scene together at a restaurant. And during this scene, Norton suggests that Twain stop working on the story that's frustrating him so much and just start writing down this joke of a story that he's just told Norton, which Twain does. And it is that story that launches his career as a writer And Norton also here makes Twain the official lifetime spinner of tales and teller of stories of the United States of America. It's a very touching scene, actually. It was really an emotional scene for me. But Dream is also hanging out at this restaurant, and presumably he's checking up on Norton, though it's possible that he's interested in Twain as well, much as we saw happen throughout Men of Good Fortune. But what really matters here is that delirium is present also. And she says that she likes San Francisco and that she has spent today with a bunch of immigrant prostitutes who, even in their 20s, have already become old women too diseased to live. And so she has spent the afternoon with them as they are uh, preparing to die, I guess might be one way to put it. And she also wonders what is going on with Norton. His behavior is clearly well, insane is I think the word that we would use in a weird fiction story. And so he ought to be hers, but his mind is just fine. And so actually he's not hers at all. And in fact, she says it's this insanity, or really I think madness is the word that she uses. It's his madness that keeps him sane. And Dream suggests that he's not the only one who's living that way. What really strikes me here, Brent, is Delirium's character in this story. And I'm not going to say anything specific, but. My memory of Delirium from future story arcs is that she's sweet and weird and funny, but that is not how we have had her so far. And this issue especially is grouping her with Desire and Despair, whom we know have been seriously trying to destroy Dream. This is an aspect of her character that I had forgotten about.
1: She's always a little different. So I think we have her having a slightly different visage here intentionally because she'd been spending time with these uh, girls who were from China originally, um, who were living in San Francisco and being treated very poorly. Um, And so she has kind of a slightly more traditionally kind of East Asian features in this issue than she did last time we saw her, but she seems kind of, Off-kilter and unaware, and I think later we see her in a little bit more playful of a way, but I think that we, with Delirium, I think part of the idea is that she is not as static personality-wise as the others because she is Delirium, and so... I think there's a number of different types of personalities that are in play within her. And she very much changes based on the environment she's in and who she's spending time with. So in this case, we do see kind of a playful her creating a frog with wings bit because they're listening to a story about frogs. But we also have her initially creating this like really dark, bloody heart kind of illusion or actual heart hard to say in the air above her hand because she's talking about this very dark experience of these this women who she has just been with the one thing i will say is i think that delirium more consistently than the other siblings often reflects and is more affected by the mortals she interacts with and those around her and so I think when she will have some issues later where she is more often in Dream's company for a longer period of time. And in some ways, then maybe she's reflecting the way that Dream is treating her versus here where there's kind of a darker, kind of a, you know, a lot more kind of horror element to her. Um, and a lot of more terror involved in some ways with, with what she is talking about and also what she is kind of bringing into being, at least visually. But that in part again, as I think because she is reacting to the environment that she was just in versus the end of her time here where she is reacting more towards hearing a funny story about um a hopping frog. Um so I think that yeah, delirium's just a hard one to to ping down. And it's interesting to me that delirium, you know, Dream says, I, I assume you're here because of the challenge. And her response is, challenge? Oh, yeah. She said something about that. I don't know. And then she says, he ought to be mine, but he isn't, is he? And it's just like, I'm not, you're never quite sure how much delirium is actually, you know, involved in whatever desire and despair are up to. It seems to be more that she's just the younger sibling who's being dragged along with the older siblings, Um, not the oldest siblings in this case, but the uh, kind of the middle siblings and, and kind of has less actual, you know, involvement maybe in these things. But it is curious that if we're supposed to take it, that Norton initially rejects despair because of dreams intervention and does not kill himself is where I think we were going with the first few pages. Um, But that instead he is, Behaving in a way that some might think is reflective of a mental health problem. Um, but here delirium is saying like, no, no, that's not what's going on. He's not one of mine. He's not kind of lost to some kind of a, you know, insanity for lack of a, a different term um, at this point. Um so I think she's more kind of confused and bewildered, which is oftentimes I feel the way delirium is presented, though, as kind of as a confused person. Um, but that's also something that we'll see where she gets frustrated later on, not in this issue, but uh at the way when people treat her as if she is just a confused child and that she doesn't know things. Because she does know things, it's just that it doesn't manifest correctly.
0: We do get something like that in this issue, where when she's listening to Mark Twain and Emperor Norton talk to each other, one of the things that they're talking about is people laughing at them, you know, people laughing at at, at Emperor Norton, not taking him seriously. And Delirium says, I don't like it when people laugh at me. It's not something that Dream or anyone else comments on then in the the issue. Like, this is not a, a bit of dialogue. It's really just kind of an aside. But I think this tells us quite a bit about her relationship with her siblings, right? Is that she doesn't feel like she's taken seriously because she's the youngest and she desperately wants to be taken seriously. And that well, I guess we can call that a desire, right? That desire to be taken seriously is perhaps something that allows her to be manipulated by despair and desire. And this is this is kind of a, a classic sibling relationship, right? <laughs> of, 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 you know, oldest sibling, middle sibling, younger sibling. I mean, it's been a while since I've been, you know, a kid living in a house with siblings, but I remember this type of dynamic as well. And I think that Gaiman has really subtly done that here. And I appreciate the way that you have of tease that out of the of the story for me.
1: There's a couple horror elements I feel like we get in this issue, although most of it's more kind of magical realism in a playful sense. Because Norton's like worst moments kind of are where we start. And then he kind of, you know, in terms of the telling of Job, we like start with him already at his lowest in some ways, instead of starting at the like, hey, what if we ruin someone's life? It's just like, no, no, here's this guy whose life was ruined. Uh, where do we go from here? kind of thing. But I feel like we, there are some horror elements in terms of the bloody dripping heart. And then on the next page, this, her saying that she doesn't like to be laughed at and kind of the way that she appears on panel just strikes me as like, there could be something really dangerous brewing kind of within her head and like the dangers associated with if someone were to laugh at her, like what might result? Um, So it's there's just a lot going on there. Delirium I think is a, is a really great character. Um, And it's always kind of interesting to see her stumble through, not the least of which, because her word balloons and the decisions that were made around it are remarkable, which I think we talked about last time we saw her, but just as a reminder um, for those who are listening, but have not read the comic recently uh, instead of the traditional White word balloon with black text that almost everybody gets in comics uh, or dreams variation where it inverts that in which it's a black balloon with white text. We get a multicolored kind of bubbly thing with kind of text that is uh, black on top of it's for readability, but the text is not kind of nicely written in a way that makes it clear like it's just kind of let's say normal. Uh, I guess is the word I'm going to use. So um, it's always kind of fun visually just to see the text balloons for Delirium.
0: Uh, yeah, I love Delirium. And uh, it's always a, a delight, I guess I'll say, when she uh, when she appears in an issue. And I had forgotten that she was in this issue. So it was, it was really fun to see her here. And I am, uh, you know, without spoiling anything for people who are reading along with us for the first time, I, I will just say, I am looking forward to getting more of her in the future. Do you think that Gaiman is trying to suggest here that... Mark Twain also owes his 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 genius his literary genius to this proximity to dream in in this scene or maybe really even specifically to this Friendship with Norton, who is kind of uh, an extension of Dream's realm, or at least extension of Dream's power in some way. Now, um, I don't think that you know we're seeing something that's quite on the level of making a deal the way that we get with Shakespeare. But it does strike me that you know he's here in the same time that Dream is here, uh, talking with Norton. Uh, maybe in some ways this is something akin to what we saw with Geoffrey Chaucer in *Men of Good Fortune*.
1: Yeah, it's really hard to tell because we definitely see – it feels like Dream has decided after being so reluctant way back when in Men of Good Fortune to go with his sister to hang out in taverns. He now seems to have decided that it's a good way to just scout talent. Um, But I'm never <laughs> sure with Dream whether it's he's – whether you know it's him actively providing the talent or something about an aura emanating off of him or if it's that he is drawn to happening to be in the bar restaurant tavern where you end up having such great storytellers like whether that ends up being the reason why they're drawn there but norton at this point being Empowered by isn't the right term, but it's, it's not like he's directly acting as an agent of Dream, but there's definitely some connection there that is keeping him, because of Dream's influence, out of Despair's realm, out of Delirium's realm. So he is in some way connected to the realm. So there could be that this is just an initial scouting attempt and that later we don't ever see on panel uh, an actual like, hey, let's make an agreement that he happens to have with Samuel Clemens. Uh, Or it could just be that him having Norton kind of help spread dream ideas and stuff around just becomes such an inspiration the way that, you know we are inspired by reading things that we read like this comic, right? That that has a reciprocating effect and it has kind of an iterative effect on the idea of, you know, art beginning more art. Um, and so him hearing Norton's fanciful stories that he's not writing down, well, occasionally is in terms of his proclamations, right. Um, is nonetheless having an iterative effect on his own creativity, um, it certainly would make him the kind of person who you definitely would want to spend more time with if you're Samuel Clemens. Um, and we do see, I, I don't know if we've noticed this yet, but noted this yet, but uh, um, you mentioned that there are many kind of pop culture references that are made to Norton throughout um, time after he, you know, while he was alive and while he, and after he passed, certainly. But, What is not in doubt at all is that the character of the king from Huckleberry Finn is very much driven by um, Samuel Clemens' memories of Norton and then basically incorporating the Emperor Norton into his fiction um, as a fictitious character of the king. So there's definitely something there.
0: I wonder then what is the relationship between that inspiration and dream being here in the bar like if if this is actually part of a bargain that they struck but of course something we should emphasize here is that the bargain that he strikes that dream strikes I mean with William Shakespeare is really specific right that he's going to imbue Shakespeare with greater than usual literary genius in exchange for Shakespeare writing two plays for him. And we don't yet know what the second one is, but we have encountered the first, right? And so we know that the first one is a play that Dream essentially is commissioning here as a kind of present, a kind of gift for Titania, um, with whom you and I have speculated he's having some kind of extra special relationship, right? And uh, knowing that they're about to leave, the fairies are about to leave this realm. It's kind of a a farewell end of relationship gift for Titania. So he had something really specific in mind with Shakespeare. Uh, Maybe he does with with Twain as well, though we just don't know what it is here. That's something that we definitely could talk about on the the Discord server with listeners, right? To speculate what kind of bargain Dream might have struck with Mark Twain. Like, what's the work that Mark Twain wrote that was for Dream and, and why? That would be a really fun conversation to have.
1: I will note that in the panel where we see Dream, you know, doing his observing from the corner thing with his glass of wine, art wise, he is lined up to be in line with Samuel Clemens, not with Norton. So that could be just to reflect the relationship that, you know, the dreamer. Who tells you know the stories and storyteller of Samuel Clemens is just you know on the same or similar kind of plane that dream is on, or it could be something else or it may not be intentional at all. It's hard to say, but uh uh he seems to have his eyes maybe more on Samuel Clemens than on Norton or it could just be that that was the chair that was available, and that's the way the artist drew it so.
0: Well, all right. That is two Septembers down. So now it's time for the last one. This in 1875. So it's 16 years from where we started this story. When we meet Emperor Norton this time, he really looks the part. He's got a a feathered top hat. He's got a, a parasol. And people know who he is. We even see a family of tourists asking for some of his imperial currency. And you mentioned earlier, Brent, that this is a a, a real thing that Norton did. He printed his own money and then sold it to people for proper American currency. And that's really how he made a living in this capacity as emperor. But also, as you said, his currency was accepted in many places in San Francisco, which I think is a real uh, strange thing for us to think about happening in our world today. But at any rate, what is really happening in this segment of the issue is that Norton is summoned to a bar called the Cobweb Palace, where he receives a drink and a meal on the house. But he's not been summoned just for a a meal, just to hang out here. This is a meeting. And it's a meeting with the Monarch of Monkswood, the Wizard of Wolfsbane, the Earl of Aconite, the Late, the Great, the King of Pain, and this figure is clad all in red. He is extremely pale, and uh, turns out that's because he's dead. But the King of Pain is not here for himself. He's here serving as a representative of uh, desire, I guess, principally, that we might say despair and desire. And the deal is that he is here to tempt Norton with a woman who will be his empress and therefore be able to give him some airs. And Norton admits that he's been vexed by this problem, the absence of a wife, and in particular, the absence of heirs. But in the end, he declines the offer. And now we see Desire outside in a a coach waiting for the King of Pain to return. And Desire is furious at his failure here on this mission, because Desire knows that Norton is full of sexual longing. But Norton was not swayed by that. He was not tempted into Desire's realm. And Dream, who's here also, Dream simply says that Norton's dignity mattered more to him than what Desire was offering. And there is an awful lot to unpack here, Brent. I also left out a a lot of fun details, but I want to start by talking about this King of Pain because he looks to me like a red version of the Joker from from Batman, and I know that the first time I read this thirty years ago when we were teenagers, I just assumed that he was a comic book character that I didn't know. But that is not true. He's a a real person. And uh, what can you tell us about this about this guy?
1: Yeah, he he is a real person. Um, and here uh, I'm going to go to the annotation from Leslie Klinger's annotated Sandman, where he um, l- looking at Asbury's the Barbary Coast. He notes that also important Asbury's and Asbury's, the Barbary coast is the itinerant healer who called himself the King of pain quote. He was probably the most ornate personage in the San Francisco of his time. Asbury writes, his customary attire was scarlet underwear, a heavy velour robe, a high hat bedecked with ostrich feathers and a heavy sword. When he went abroad, he rode in a coal black coach drawn by six snow white horses. The King of Pain made a fortune selling uh, aconite liniment from a pitch at 3rd and Mission Street, but he lost all his money at the gaming tables and finally committed suicide. So, yeah, no, he struck me as some kind of a comic book character kind of particularly with the decision to make him kind of a ghostly white. Um, There's no indication that I can see in anything that I saw that the King of pain necessarily, you know, there was that he was wearing red underwear and a lore robe, but not that he would have been ghostly white. So that I'm attributing to the fact that he at this point apparently is dead. I'm thinking of somewhat as if he's some kind of a vampiric creature that uh is coming from desire's domain and then I thought about vampires and desire and the relationship thereon but he was one of a number of characters along with Norton who were kind of all in San Francisco during this time um there's no indication that they necessarily crossed paths but again they probably did at some point <laughs>
0: Yeah, th- it does kind of seem like San Francisco at this time had all of the, the hallmarks of, uh, or at least all the potential, maybe I'll say, for being something akin to Batman's Gotham, right? Then <laughs> we've got all of these costumed characters. We've got Mark Twain too who, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's a kind of San Francisco Batman. I, I, anyway, this is a this is a story that Alan Moore needs to take up, a, a kind of new version of uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I would uh, I would definitely be down for something like that. But I think your question here about what kind of entity is the King of Pain in this story is an important question because dead people are the purview of death, right? But this dead person is clearly the purview of desire. Of course, we know about Dream's ravens, right? Taking dead people and making them ravens. So I guess we're meant to extrapolate here, or we can extrapolate here, that each of the endless has some way to take a dead mortal and bring that person into their realm in in some way is that is that what you're taking from this
1: yeah that's somewhat how, what I'm taking from it and i'm particularly i began unspooling the idea of and i mentioned the idea that perhaps the king of pain is kind of like a vampire. I think with that, I was going with the idea that if you're creating, you know, snake oil stuff, and if you actually were to believe in some of it, right, then medical cures to desire a longer life, to live in perpetuity or to be able to deal with air ailments, uh, that might be going on. Although if you are aware that it's a con, um, then it could just be the desire to amass wealth and then him dying at the gaming table where we had Matthew the Raven dying in a dream and therefore be dying in dreams realm. If you are at the height of kind of a, some kind of euphoria associated with gambling, perhaps you're at, you know, just peak desire to make even more money and therefore you're in desire's realm at that point. Perhaps that's where desire can step in and they can make you one of their creatures upon uh death um at least for a period of time Uh, it's unclear we don't see when we jump to the more modern things you know desire is alone in their realm um and we don't see other people associated with it so we don't know whether the king of pain relationship is one that you know necessarily lasts or if it's just a period of time or what but uh Yeah, there's a lot of fun, I think, fiction you could spin off of what is going on there and what the relationship is between the two. But did you have thoughts on the relationship there between Desire and the King of Pain and what the relationship might be? Well, I wonder how many people, how many dead mortals Desire
0: is able to take into the the realm of desire, the threshold of desire, I guess, right? Or uh, presuming they, they dwell in the threshold of desire, I guess. But yeah, I wonder how many there are. Because Dream has uh, well, certainly Matthew, right? Or has a raven at any given time, as far as we can tell, who has been a mortal, who has died while being in Dream's realm in some sense that might not always be the Dreaming, it might just be in the realm of you know stories, the realm of, of poetry, creativity, and so on. But we also see some other entities dwelling in the Dreaming who are not Dream's creation, who may in some sense have been mortals. Here I'm thinking about Cain and Abel and Eve who are all dwelling in the Dreaming. So yeah, I just wonder how many of these types of people Desire has you know, as well, akin akin to dream. And, and then also by extension, how many uh, of these type of people, the other members of the Endless have, and what are they doing with all of these mortals? Like, do they have retinues? Is uh, the King of Pain fulfilling some kind of function in desire's realm, like a kind of uh, steward? I mean, is the King of Pain the librarian in in the the
1: threshold of desire or something like that? Could be, or it's just an envoy here. We see him at least as an envoy attempting to tempt um, Norton into Desire's realm. And so that, you know, she won't be, they won't be seen as directly, you know, interfacing with Norton. Um, And instead, you know, he will see this agent who he's familiar with. He maybe knew the King of Pain you know when he was still alive and maybe doesn't fully realize that he's dead at this point um it's not it's not really clear
0: yeah one one thing here that we can note though we won't dwell on this because uh I, we try to be a family friendly podcast here i guess but as this coach with desire and the king of pain is pulling away desire does command the king of pain to begin performing sexual acts uh, for her own gra- uh, for desire's own gratification and uh, that might actually be I suppose in some sense what this mortal is for and uh, yeah that's something I guess you know as we get more desire we can we can think about that because we really also ought to make sure that we call attention to something that desire actually says as they are pulling off in this coach, which is I'll make him spill family blood. I'll bring the kindly ones down on his blasted head one day and we have had this business about spilling family blood before this goes back to to doll's house and then we've had it uh, again in some other places as well uh, i guess most recently we've had something like this in thermidor but i think this is the first mention of the kindly
1: ones is that right brent i think we might have had a mention briefly before when dream uncovers The plot that Desire puts into motion to have him kill Rose Walker um, and that that would call upon um, spilling family blood would make him susceptible to the kindly ones. But I'd have to recheck that. But I think that's the case.
0: Well, in in either case, we can say that this is not a phrase that Gaiman has invented. This is a term that's used in ancient Greek. It's a kind of euphemistic uh, way of referring to the Furies. And the Furies are Well, there are several different versions of the Furies, and perhaps we'll talk about this in more detail in in a future episode. But what we can say here is that the Furies are numinous beings whose purview is the hunting down of people who have shed family blood, people who have killed members of their own family. They feature very much in ancient Greek literature, especially ancient Greek tragedy, that we also get them in uh, other types of literature. And so here, this is an indication that like many of the other Greek and also Roman and also Egyptian uh, deities, as well as other deities from other religious systems, these kindly ones exist here in this world, fulfilling the type of function that they're most famous for in uh, Greek tragedy.
1: Leslie Klinger does uh, note that he had a discussion in private correspondence with Neil Gaiman, uh, probably in preparation for the annotated Sandman, where he was talking to Neil about desire's plan that's referenced here. And Neil wrote to Leslie Klinger and said, desire's plan from the end of three Septembers is the doll's house. Desire impregnates Rose's grandmother, hoping to create a vortex of dream that Morpheus will destroy and thus shedding family blood, bring down the furies. So, you know, Neil's view of it is that the, you know, coming off of this desire eventually hatches the plan to do what ends up happening, you know, as a result of dream, the the opportunity of dream being unavailable from the world and therefore desire could um, uh, rape unity Kincaid and result in the creation down the line then of Rose Walker um, and then doll's house gets tipped off. So um it, it's good to remember where this issue fits in the continuity. Um well, all these ones we've jumped back in time, but for this one, there's a lot of things that Dream uh there's a lot of things that Dream does in this issue that makes me think that it would fall after the issues we've read, but uh uh it's all occurring before most of the issues that we've read.
0: Right. Yeah you, you and I have had the audacity of uh, uh reading reading this story in publication order, but uh, maybe when we're all done doing this, which is still going to be like six or seven years from now, let's do it again and read it in story order <laughs> instead of publication order. So this will come before Doll's House. Um, I, I think I'm mostly joking there, but uh, if that's something listeners are interested in, ah, might be might be fun to do. Well, all right. We have now completed all of the Septembers. And so that means it is time to get the January. And this now is five years later. It's January 1880. And this is when Emperor Norton dies. We see him walking in the rain, and then we see him collapse. It's a heart attack. Maybe it's a stroke. It's something like that. And despair is there. And she admits that she failed. And she marvels that although he was a delusional person without a family, without a position, he still managed to live a happy life. And he never despaired. And Dream arrives now as well, and he gives to Spare a statuette of Norton, which is a souvenir that shops in San Francisco sell. And he tells her that she should thank him for the lesson, though she doesn't know what he means. And Dream does not explain either. So I guess we have to ask here, Brent, what was the lesson? I mean, what do you think Dream means here?
1: I think what Dream means here is I think you know, this is dream that is most arrogant. This is before he's been captured. This is where he's got tons of power. He is just shown to desire and delirium and despair that he can just give one dream to one mortal. And that mortal will have power to stay out of all of their realms. So I think his, uh, the lesson is don't mess with me. I'm more powerful than any of you or all of you combined. Um, I'm not sure that's the lesson that he should be taking. I think that uh, there's some dangerousness to his arrogance there, but uh, that's the lesson I think he's attempting to um, convey. But what, what were your thoughts?
0: Right. I think that's kind of the dark, broody version of, uh, of of Dream here that I think is probably right. But perhaps a more charitable way of, of thinking about it is that Dream has shown the younger siblings how important dreams are, maybe akin to when all the way back in Preludes and Nocturnes, Dream tells Lucifer that hell would have no power if the inhabitants, uh, the dead souls in hell, could not dream of heaven. And therefore, you know, Dream's are part of the foundation of well, all the other realms in some in some sense, or can have power over them in some sense. Uh, so, yeah, that's I think my my charitable reading of of what Dream is saying here. But I suspect that your your reading is more correct.
1: That's the one thing that doesn't work as well. One of the things that doesn't work as well for me in the story is the idea that Dream is saying, and he says to Despair early that like, no, no, dreams have power. It's something that he did come to, we saw previously in the comic, but later chronologically when having the game in hell. But it really takes the tension out of the game of hell if he already knows that Dream is – the ability to say, like, Dream is more powerful than anything is a veto stamp on things. It it kind of gets diminished in some ways for this story. I think if we read these chronologically, we'd be more underwhelmed then with what happens in – Issue three, um, which is too bad um, in some ways, because I just, it feels like it should be something that he has a little more challenge to come to understanding that, and it would be more of a surprise versus here. I guess there's a reason why Lucifer would know what's going on here necessarily. So, you know, even if despair has heard him say this, that's not being conveyed elsewhere, but still. It it really ratchets down the tension of what we saw in issue three. um, If he already said this line, you know, a hundred years earlier, um, for me.
0: Sure, and even even that in terms of the timescale that we're really dealing with here, which is that these endless are well, they're they're endless, right? That they they have in some sense been around for at least hundreds of thousands of years if not billions of years i guess actually we know literally they've been around for billions of years because we get that in the in the text right and so you would think that this is a lesson that everyone would already have learned, everybody should actually already know this, I think in you know some some real technical sense here. but of course, that doesn't work for the storytelling, it doesn't work for the world building. And so'm I'm, I'm happy to, to to overlook it though I think that the, the knit that you are picking there is, uh, um, is, is is a good one is a, val- is a valid knit. Well, all right, let's take this issue home now. So on the very last page, death arrives, and she's going to take Norton well, wherever she's going to take him, right? And she says that of all the kings and emperors and heads of state that she's met, she likes Norton best. She also wants to try on his hat. And so the last image that we get is their backs as they walk away with their arms around each other and death wearing the imperial top hat. But we do get a coda, as well. And here, the narrator tells us that 10,000 people visited Norton's body as it lay in state, and that his funeral procession was two miles long. He was the first and last emperor of the United States. And I have to say, I think this is a fantastic ending at the end of this story here. I really feel for this character. I think this has been a pretty emotional story, at least uh, at least for me. It was an emotional story.
1: Yeah, uh, I felt a lot... Um... The four emperor Norton. Throughout, we saw him again. I, I mentioned this earlier, where he started kind of at the pit of despair, and literally, um, and then he dreamed a dream, and he kind of stuck with it. And this idea that you know, death says that she might be, he might be the you know the the monarch who she likes most of all the ones she's met. Um, kind of echoes something which is mentioned earlier in the story, in which um, there's a brief discussion of when. Uh, he faced trial. Norton did, um, and the judge let him go. And the judge said he didn't, you know, spill blood or anything. That's not entirely true. So Leslie Klinger does tell us that he was arrested for vagrancy in 1867. Um, but there, all the newspapers kind of helped stir it up and rally everyone that they should kind of, you know, protest regarding this. And um, uh, upon his release, uh, there's no indication as to what the judge said. He was released, um, but. One of the – the Daily Alta California wrote that Emperor Norton has never shed blood. He has robbed no one and despoiled no country. And that gentleman is a hell of a lot more than can be said for anyone else in the king line. Um, So the the chief of police then released him with an apology. And that's the idea of like, you know, here's a guy who's – he's not hurting anyone. He's not stealing from anyone. He's taking advantage of – the people's kind of charitable contributions to him. And in exchange, he's giving them a souvenir. So, um, also, we see tourists though, who are happy to like, you know, take photos and bring back, you know, souvenirs, uh, having met him. So we have someone kind of, you know, living a pretty good life coming from a place where he is impoverished and kind of bringing joy to other people through his, Proclamations and kind of, you know, just very presence. And that's kind of a wonderful little life that he has lived. This is a story of a person who
0: finds a just a beautiful and and happy life and finds real meaning living a a fantasy, living a fiction, living in his own imagination. And I, I guess ultimately that's what this story is is about here, right? That's Gaiman's interest here, right? As we've seen. the the through line for really all of the Sandman is Gaiman's interest in stories and storytelling, but that's the storytellers as well, and just the power of story, the power of imagination. We've gotten that in a number of ways before. This is the, the first time that we've seen anything like this, right? Where we've seen someone living in their own imagination, someone who's not necessarily a creative, as in someone who is a, an artist of some kind. Of course, we get Twain here, right? But Norton is not an artist of some kind, but nonetheless feels this power of imagination, and it brings his life meaning, brings him joy, and brings others joy
1: as well. And uh, it's, a, yeah, it's a beautiful story. I will say, uh, Neil apparently struggled a lot with writing this one though. Um, so Leslie Klinger notes that he had a great difficulty in writing it. Neil recounted that every now and then I wind up with a script that I have real problems with writing. This is one of them. Uh, the last one, this bad was Sandman number 17, the one that turned into Calliope. I kept beginning it. Eventually I wound up having to throw it out and strip the idea back and start again. Um, this one's been worse in a way. First, I had an idea, began it, couldn't get it to work, stripped it back, put some new stuff in, began it again, realized that there was no way I could get the story. I was beginning to work in 24 pages. So I went back to my first idea. The first idea was a story about Emperor Norton I of America and protector of Mexico. Trouble was I couldn't get the right part of his life. Couldn't get him into focus. I thought about setting it in. It, Sending it on the one day he went sane, but even then that didn't work. Or maybe it worked out, but I didn't feel I said anything new. The second idea was for a little pastoral about madness, about Rick Maddock from Sandman 17, two years on recovering in a nursing home and about the people who love him and the healing power of love. But Norton didn't really fit into it except as part of Maddock's obsession and really neither did the Sandman. And it would just take too long to get all the characters up and running It'd work as a novella or as four or five episodes of something like Love and Rockets, but not as one of not not as one Sandman. I know I was six pages into it and we hadn't even met Rick yet. So I've sighed, abandoned that and gone back to idea number one again. And in desperate attempt to get this working and to get it happening by deadline or at least less terrifyingly late, I've pulled lots of glitzy things that really ought to get it to work. I'm going to bring the Sandman up into a major co-star role. I'm going to bring in other members of the family, and I'm going to do it over four time periods following the whole of Norton's life as emperor. Uh High Bender um, has a little bit more from Neil on this. He says, uh, writing it, it was a roller coaster. I was really enthusiastic about it during the planning stages as I thoroughly enjoyed reading it um, based on. Uh, Caulfield's Emperor of the United States of America, another magnificent British eccentrics, Asbury's Barbary Coast, and Drury's Norton One Emperor of the United States. I took a wrong turn when writing it, though, and had to back up and restart, which was a problem I hadn't encountered over for over a year. Then I was okay with it until the pages came in. The artwork by Sean McManus was terrific, but when I read my story in its finished form, I was horrified. It struck me as cheap and obvious. I phoned Tom Payer, the associate editor at the time, and said, Tom, this story will get us laughed out of the country. It's awful. Let's just drop it and plunge straight into a game of you. And Tom laughed at me. Or maybe he just said no politely. I don't remember, but he declined. These days, though, I look at it fondly and wonder why I had such a bad reaction to it. I'm very much glad that we didn't get any kind of redemptive thing for Rick though. I'm very happy to not have any redemption for that character. So I'm glad that didn't happen.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you that, how you felt about missing out on that story. And I I think I agree with you there, uh, that if I could uh, wave my magic wand and get another issue of the the Sandman, uh, that's not the one I would... Cheers. There, there, there are a lot of a lot of candidates above that one for sure. So I'm glad that this turned out and shaped out the way that it did. Well, let's go talk about our favorite panels, the title, but of course let's also start with, as we always do, the cover. And this one is another black and white drawing with a spot of color, as we've we've been getting in this distant mirrors arc. But I think this one is the most straightforward that we have had so far. I mean, it is clearly the front of some San Francisco row houses. There's a light on in one of the windows and then the figure of Emperor Norton illuminated there. At least that's what I think is going on.
1: Yeah. uh, I think that's exactly what's going on. We have some of the colorful moon motif behind the S in September's in the bottom of the panel. Um, I think that The fact that we've got, again, a black and white sketch, we've talked about how much we've enjoyed these where they just have like some splashes of very specific uses of color where we've got that around Norton and the window he's in. It's to demonstrate kind of the vivid and colorful life that he's living. Um, There's not that in the other windows, although I will point out that the windows that above him do have shades drawn. So there might be people equally living vivid, kind of colorful lives that in San Francisco around him that we're just not actually viewing in this issue. So I I like the decision to not have all of the windows be open. um, But I also really like the way it just was, it was set up to be this way. Um, I'm not sure that the, what appear to maybe be telephone lines are historically appropriate to be there. But uh, other than that, that's my only qualm. I, I really like it. Right, I think, Brent, if those uh, curtains
0: had been open, what we would see is actually the members of the Tanner family from Full House. So I'm glad <laughs> as well that Dave McKean decided to keep them keep them closed for us. Well, let's talk about the title now. I think this one is well. It's basically what it says on the box, right? But it is also, I will say, the first of these month titles that felt kind of artificial to me and. I guess what I mean by that, Brent, is that with the other issues, Gaiman could easily have written them and then settled on a title. But in this case, it's pretty clear that Gaiman went to the story with the month's gimmick in mind.
1: Yeah, well, I think from you know what I shared when he was writing it, he was still trying to figure out how to set it up, and then I think once he figured out he had wanted the entire life, then he decided, like, okay, well, then I'm going to cover periods of time. But the fact that he chose all of these necessarily to be the three Septembers and January, that that he would choose multiple months um, here is driven by the fact that he was specifically paying reference to something. Um, High Bender – I think Leslie Klinger mentioned this as well, but uh, reading from High Bender, um, High says it's got a familiar-sounding rhythm. And um, Neil responds with, that's because it was playing off of Four Weddings and a Funeral, which was a neat trick since the story came out three years before the movie did. What happened was my friend Richard Curtis called while I was working on the script and said, I'm five pages into a screenplay. I'm calling Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I said, that's a lovely title. I'm going to take a spin off that as a small tribute. Neither of us had any idea at the time whether the picture would actually be produced. Little did we know it would turn out to be the most successful British film ever made. That is until men started wiggling it in the full Monty. So um, it's just that he liked the way Four Weddings and a Funeral sounded. Four Weddings and a Funeral is a funny and fun expression to say. Um because I like the film a lot, um, I find myself frequently referencing it, but I think the fact that it's also fun to say Four Weddings and a Funeral makes it easier. So, hence, three Septembers and a January is really just kind of a playoff of Four Weddings and a Funeral.
0: Yeah, and as I recall, in the, the 1990s, you and I actually saw that film together in a in
1: a theater, right? <laughs> yes, I believe we did, Um Probably the first of many viewings that I've had of that film over the last. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, certainly, we watched it quite a bit in
0: your basement on a on a good old VCR and uh, cathode ray television as well. But I do I do have the vague memory of us going to the theater to see it as our our first viewing. But uh, uh, nobody wants to hear any more about that. I don't think so. Let's go talk about our our favorite panels. What was your favorite panel?
1: Uh, I had a tough one on this one because. Things didn't stand out to me quite as much. And it wasn't until the, at least the second, if not third reading that I was really kind of settled on a favorite panel. But what I went with was um, the second to last page of the story. We have, um, you know, he he is lying on on the ground. Um, despair and dream are talking about him over him. Um, and then there's a brief bit at the bottom of the page, the last two panels where, um, he, they, they dream has left and despair has left. And it is just Norton in the bottom left panel. And then the bottom right panel, um, then death appears and says, um, time's up, your majesty. My favorite panel, I think, is the bottom left panel. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, so I'm going to try to piece together why, uh, live as we go here. Um, part of it, I think is just the fact that here is a bit where Neil gives us room as the audience to take a bit beat to think about all of his life. You know, this isn't the first panel where there's no text. There, there's no text for quite a few of the panels on the page before where he actually is having the aneurysm or heart attack or or whatever um, thing is leading to his uh, dying occurring um, and falling to the pavement. Um, But here's the bit kind of where there's a blink between uh, where he was alive and then death escorting him to the next place where we can kind of think about and what his life, particularly for this time period that we've covered from when he declared himself emperor until now kind of has meant for himself has meant for the people of San Francisco has meant for us, you know, as readers of the story, but also us as people who live in the world where emperor Norton did exist. Right. Um, and it lets us kind of reflect on that. It also, to me in a metaphysical way, there's a separation, um, It could be that Neil just didn't want to have an interaction where dream and death and despair are all talking to each other. Didn't, you know, don't want to take the panels for that. Right. But also it's also this weird blink in which the mortal is left completely alone for just a second. Particularly they're free from despair, toying with them, desire, trying to toy with them, delirium, being confused. What's going in dream. It just finally, he's kind of alone and at peace. Um, so even though he, you know, is laying there with his mouth agape and being rained on, and it's kind of a, a very sad picture in some ways, it's also not as sad in some ways, because it's just like, it feels more actual, like, you know, the rest of rest in peace mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, even though, you know, he's about to then spend time with death, who is delightful as always still, he, he gets a moment of actual rest and silence, um, And so that's where I picked as my
0: favorite panel. All right, Brent, you have uh, embraced 90s goth culture here by picking the (laughs) panel that shows the uh, dead person in the rain. I imagine you looking at this panel, sadly, while perhaps listening to the soundtrack for The Crow or something like that. uh, uh, Well done, sir, is what I have to say.
1: (laughs) Uh, It might have been The Cure's Disintegration. uh, I'm not going to lie.
0: Right. Yeah. That's actually probably the better choice. I just was thinking about how much presence of rain there is in the film The Crow. But uh, yeah, we can let people come tell us, which they prefer on, uh, on the Discord server. Right. Well, I picked page nine, which is the first page of September 1864. I think at this point, people realize that I am a sucker for, well, scapes of any kind. In this case, it is a cityscape. And the bottom left gives us a really wonderful view of Mark Twain's apartment building. We've got Emperor Norton standing in front of it, It just looks like a really interesting town. And of course it is. We've talked quite a bit about that. But I also like that we get a series of speech balloons from the unseen Mark Twain as he makes his way down the stairs, cursing himself and I guess cursing his story as well. It was a funny panel and uh, it really got me. I I thought it was funny. I thought it was delightful. And so that's my favorite here.
1: Yeah, no, it's a a really, it's a great bit of art, um, wonderful architecture Um, and also nicely establishes that, again, Norton, as he did in real life, was out on the street frequently um, in front of where um, Samuel Clemens worked.
0: Well, all right. We have done our due diligence on this issue. We've done our favorite panels, the cover, the title. We've walked through, I think, every, every segment of the issue. Though, as always, of course, I think we probably still left quite a bit on the table. But that is going to do it for this episode.
1: I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. As we always do, we are taking December
0: off for the holidays, and that makes this an extra awesome time to join us on Patreon in order to get access to our Sherlock Holmes series, also scores of other episodes. In fact, we are closing in on 200 Patreon episodes, so there is plenty there to keep you company while we are off. And then we will be back with a two-parter on the extra-length Sandman special, The Song of Orpheus, which you can find in Fables and Reflections. We'll uh, do that in January. And until then, pleasant dreams.